Here's an insider's perspective on what happens in the ER from an ER doctor. There's a lot more than you might know. So stay tuned. You might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, it's Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And this is a show that I have really been looking forward to doing for a while and finding somebody to, well, who would honestly be willing to sit down and have this conversation has been difficult, predominantly because emergency room professionals, which is the subject that we're talking about here today, are always in demand, usually in the emergency room. And when they're not there, they're probably exhausted and catching up on their own care. So my guest today is Dr. Brittany Lamb, who is an emergency room doctor and professional. And she also has a passion in helping and working with elderly people who are patients in the emergency room and have dementia and the caregivers who are there. So there's lots in store on this episode, and I want you to pay close attention. As many of you know, if you don't already know, you're going to know now, we're the authors of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, and Brittany has been kind enough to review that. So we're going to be talking a little bit about some of that stuff and a lot about what's going on in the ER these days. And thank you, Brittany. I appreciate everything that you do in taking the time out to join me here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm I'm always excited to be able to talk about the practicalities of the ER with people so that it's less scary and people can be more prepared. So I think we're in line and I was excited to meet you as well. Well, first of all, going to the emergency room is a frightening thing and you're a doctor, but growing up as a kid, our community, where I grew up in Long Island, always had this emergency practice. They did, geez, I think it was probably twice a year that the whole community would run the fire bells on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. And in schools, they sent notes home to the parents and said, plan on an emergency evacuation in your house in case there's an issue. But that dealt with fire or community emergencies. And we all knew you meet at the tree at the end of the driveway. And if you need to get out of the house, there was the ladder out of the window. And I laugh and, and share with friends as I was probably the only college kid who went to school with one of those ladders that you throw out the window. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Even my roommates the first year is like, what is that? It's like, oh, don't ask. <laughs> Sir, Mom patch. and dad insisted. I love that. <laughs> right. Well, in case I was going to elope with the, you know, the college guy next door. <laughs> that didn't happen. In any case, I never needed it, thankfully. But I do remember the first time I called 911, which was I was out jogging around dusk time in Boston where I was living and saw a fire on top of a, a telephone pole. And it was a big flame. And I wasn't sure whether I should call. But that that sense of 
adrenaline that goes through you is real. It doesn't matter how much training you've had. I think even as a professional, that adrenaline probably goes through you too as a doctor when an emergency case comes in. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit different when you're on the receiving end versus the I'm out in my plain clothes in the world. That I think is more stressful because you're not in your environment. You don't have control. You don't have all of your tools. Um, You don't have your team of people to help you take care of the patient. But yeah, I mean, calling 911 is an adrenaline rush. So, yeah, I I think so. And not to divert from the subject, but also one of the things I keep hearing people saying is when you hear the numbers 911, we're so in in this day and age attuned to the 911 attacks that I think people forget that 911 is actually an emergency number that we need to call if there is an emergency. So I'm just putting that out there. When somebody says 911, don't think 911 or September 11th. Think emergency and medical situation, and it's urgent. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to go through some of the basics of the emergency room and what we should expect if we call 911. Well, maybe let's back up. When do you call 911? Because so so many people really hesitate to call mm-hmm. when there's an emergency and, and understanding when to call or not is probably one of yeah. the things. Yeah. Um, I'll be quite honest. I think that there is a lot of people who call who, in an ideal situation, an ideal world, they could have received help in other ways. And it was a last resort and they didn't know what to do. And so they called. And I think that's always fine if somebody is in a situation where they don't know what to do, they don't know how to get help. Their, maybe their primary care doctor isn't answering. They're all alone. I think that when in doubt, it's if you feel like you're having a medical emergency and your body is at risk of not working or you're feeling really sick, um, you're having severe symptoms of an illness, then it's okay to call. But um, people should call if you're having severe chest pain. You shouldn't drive yourself to the hospital if you're having severe chest pain. You shouldn't drive yourself if you're having difficulty breathing and you don't feel like you can safely operate a vehicle. You, know, you don't want to put other people at risk because of the way that you're feeling. Um, and you also don't want to get in the car with a family member while you're having severe symptoms um, because you put that person at risk of I'm getting into an accident. I'm trying to take care of you while they're driving. They're not trained medical professionals. Anything can happen. So severe symptoms. And I know that probably sounds like, what does that even mean? Right. But severe chest pain, difficulty breathing, somebody who is very confused all of a sudden has a severe headache, people who can't stop have can't stop vomiting. That sometimes is a reason why EMS will be called because it's like, how do you transport this person? If a person now can't walk, if they can't get up and move, we'll call 911. Um, and then allergic reactions, severe allergic reactions or something else. So those are some of the big reasons. But I think people should just err on the side of caution. If you don't feel safe driving yourself, if you don't feel safe driving your loved one or whoever you're calling on behalf of, and you feel like this is a serious medical problem, this could potentially be a life-threatening or impacting their quality of life and they're really sick, then call. I mean, that's what we're that's what we're there for. And the paramedics or the EMTs are usually trained enough to be able to know whether this is a what level the severity of the medical emergency may be there versus I know some people will call the EMTs or 911 because a parent has just slid out of a chair and they may be too large for somebody an aide or somebody to pick up. That's okay. There's a number you can actually call 
your emergency responders through a regular dispatch line, not through a 911 emergency line, because you don't want to necessarily tie up those lines for other people where have emergencies, but say, hey, listen, I need a little help. Mm -hmm. Dad's kind of like 250 pounds and I'm only 90 pounds. Well, that's not me, but. (laughs) Yes. Oh, you're right. For physical limitations and for help with falls, there's usually a non-emergency kind of line to get to paramedics. But I will tell you, yes, they they respond. They're first on scene to any to all these things, right? And so, yeah, with experience and with training, they know how to direct people and whether or not to come to the hospital. But most of the time, if you call nine one one and you're having symptoms of of something, they're mostly always going to err on the side of bringing you to the hospital. Don't rely on them to tell you you don't need to go. I I think that it's always an individual decision, and you can take with the information that you get from them. Uh, with a grain of salt, but usually they they transport patients when they after they see them. You do have a right of refusal, just so the people who are listening here know this. But the paramedics or the EMTs, their job once they arrive, is to one put you into safe conditions or a safe situation so that you can be transported. Their job is to get you safely to the hospital. Period. They're not there to diagnose or anything, but their goal is to help you arrive alive, I guess, is, is probably the best way to say that, right? Yeah, no, that's true. And then also in some in some instances, depending on where you live, it's like, where exactly are they going to take you? So hospitals have different capabilities. If we're concerned that you're having a stroke, then you need to go someplace that is certified in stroke in most cases, unless you're in a critical access area where this is all you have. Places where people are, if someone's having a heart attack, they can do an EKG in the in the field. Someone's having a heart attack, then they say, "Okay, well, we need to take this patient to a hospital that actually has a cath lab, so that the patient can go and have a stent put in." If needed. And the EMTs know that pretty much as far as where which. Yeah, they, there's there's local protocols, and depending on where you live, with what resources um, are available, and then you. It's also it's not a bad idea to know how your EMS system works around you, like. Where's the closest unit to your house? Right. Do those people, are they paid uh, medics or are they volunteer? Sometimes it's just good to know. More information is always better. So asking where they would take you, you can say what your preference is. They may not be able to honor it in the moment, but you can tell them like, this is my preferred place that I go from a hospital standpoint. It's interesting that you say know where your responders, firehouse or EMTs are located. We are in the process of building a new house. And one of the first things I did when we were looking at the property and making a decision to buy it was to identify where the EMTs were. And they're not far away, but there's a certain level of comfort. I don't care how old you are or how young you are in knowing that if you and, and this is pretty rural environment. So if you're in the woods mm-hmm. and you're eaten by a bear, well, if you're eaten by a bear, you're probably not going to be able to call 911, but maybe somebody else. Maybe somebody else will. <laughs> it may be too late then. Depends on what part of the your body the bear got you. <laughs> Whether or not you're calling that one one. Or what part of your body the bear has left. <laughs> that's yes, <what> yes. <laughs> so let's get back to the emergency room. Let's say your parent has been transported or you've been transported. We're dealing with elderly, predominantly elderly parents. They have arrived. Typically, you as an adult family member is not going to be allowed to be in the vehicle or the emergency transport vehicle with a parent. Yeah. If it's a child, that's a whole nother, it may be the case. But as an adult, 
and they arrive, what is a basic protocol that happens once somebody arrives versus an ambulance versus in a car by themselves or with somebody? Yeah. Yeah. So when people come by ambulance, the hospital is typically notified ahead of time that they are coming. And so it makes the getting them registered and trying to figure out where they're physically going to go in that emergency department a little bit more streamlined than than when patients check in through the front door. Um, this day and age, we have we do have a lot of people calling 911 because of difficulty with mobility issues and like not having anybody else who could potentially take them to the hospital, even though their medical emergency is not like they're not actively in, in dire cardiac arrest or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like we have a lot of people that use ambulances because it's because it's the safest thing in that moment, it's the most convenient. And sometimes when they hit the door, we triage them. So you look at the patient and you assess the situation, you, you know what the complaint is, like why they're there. And sometimes we do have to put patients back out into triage and sometimes even in the waiting room, even if they come by ambulance. Why don't so you explain it, what the term triage means? Yeah, so so triage is it's assigning somebody a level of acuity. So okay. how sick is this person? How concerning is their complaint that they're coming in with? As somebody who has uh, a severe headache, the worst headache they've ever had in their entire life, they're having severe chest pain, they're obviously looking like they're having trouble breathing or they're in severe pain, especially in the chest. Those are really high level concerning complaints. And so they get triage at a actually at a lower level. So lower the level your triage is, the worse you are in the emergency department. But you people don't need to know that. It's basically how sick is this person? What is their need? Um, their need for emergency attention like right now? Who is the priority? So it's a process that typically, it depends on the emergency department, but typically doctors and uh, physician assistants and nurse practitioners are not as involved in that process. Unless you have a very busy emergency department and they have somebody out there in the front. And that does sometimes happen, that they have an actual medical decision-making professional helping the nurses triage patients. So that brings up an interesting question because when your parent comes in, let's say has fallen yeah. and has broken a bone mm -hmm. and somebody comes in 20 minutes later and is having cardiac issues or heart issues, uh -huh, uh -huh. you, the parent or the parent that has fallen and has a broken bone, can actually, I don't say push to the side, uh -huh. but has a, technically you're less of an emergency and you may be waiting longer and the person with the heart issue may be elevated to a greater level of need, correct? Yeah, it's not first come first serve. And it, that's one of the most frustrating things for patients and family members is that is seeing people that have come in after them get attention before they do. And then also people who are out in the waiting room area not realizing what's going on in the back with ambulances. So ambulances typically do, do in general, get a higher priority, but it depends on why they call 911 and what their symptoms are and what's going on. So we're, we triage them as well. But yeah, I think it can be frustrating to people to to see that happen. And but that is the reality. We take care of the sickest person first, and that constantly gets moved around. Um, you know, we're, we're balancing that. So. so that's a really good point. But let's say the ambulances are coming in. There's two or three. They, they've got people in. It's a bad Friday afternoon or Friday evening, right? Mondays are the worst. I, I had a bad car accident on Super Bowl Sunday. So 
I was the patient. I know how that feels. But that's for another episode. In any case, what happens if there's a lot of activity with ambulances and all of a sudden you decide that you can't get 911 there fast enough? You're out with a parent at a restaurant or driving somewhere and they're having a heart issue. Mm -hmm. And I'm using cardiac as an example. And you decide, I'm going to take mom and dad to the emergency room now. The level of attention may not necessarily be as immediate. Do you go in and then you yell, mom's having a heart attack, what do I do? How do you get the attention versus just waiting politely online? Because some people just don't know how to say, get me in here, this is an emergency. Yeah, I think that obviously depends on the situation and what kind of help you have. You can call the emergency department. We have had people that have called. I wouldn't recommend you driving wire while someone is really sick in the back of your vehicle trying to call. Maybe there, if there was somebody else with you, you could call, but calling ahead can be helpful. Like, hey, I have a really sick, whatever, this is what's going on. Um, we're coming to the front door. When you show up, you can say, you can go inside, just pull up to the ambulance, not the ambulance, pull up to the front entrance of the emergency department and go inside and be like, I need help. I need help to, in my car. To get somebody out of the car. So, so they Yeah. And so we pull people out of cars. I don't typically do that, right. but our staff does that. And we know how to do that. It's part of our day. And so I think just being like, I need help. Like, you know, and if you, you see around you in the waiting room and no one else is in a panic, then you may be the highest, you may be the highest priority right then. Even if there's a line to get up to get registered, if everyone's standing there calmly waiting in line, then that's a good sign. So you, you may have the highest need. So tell people that something bad is happening and that you need help. Don't yeah. be afraid to raise your voice. There is an app that I actually have on my phone that, and I'll put it in the episode notes, that if you, I have it on the bottom of my phone, my my front screen, and you press the app and it tells you where the nearest emergency departments and rooms are in an area wherever I am and traveling. Mm. So that's a really helpful thing, yeah. especially if you happen to be out with a parent someplace other than your home. Yeah. And if they're up by you and you may not necessarily know where an emergency yeah, is. I think that's part of what I recommend when people are going to be traveling. And if you are, if you are going to be involved in advocating for your parent, it'll be in your best interest to know what's available to them in their network and then what's available to you if they're with you ahead of time. But yeah, if you're somewhere different that you've never been or you're just traveling for a little bit of time for some reason, that's probably not going to be something that you put on your to-do list to check off. So that would be really helpful. One of the other questions I've got, and I know other people have too and have talked about, is what happens if you're not physically there with a parent who's in an emergency situation, mm -hmm. one or the other decides to call 911 because mom or dad's having a heart attack or has fallen and, and something's happened, and you're not there. You yeah. can't physically be there or they don't have an advocate. They've fallen someplace when they're out in the mall and yeah. hurt themselves. And 911 is called, they're taken to the emergency room, they don't have anybody to advocate for them. So now they're in a sense of pain themselves. They may be somewhat delusional or in and out of, of consciousness. Uh -huh. What happens then? Yeah. That's a little frightening. Yeah. You, you don't have the ability to be there for them. I mean, that's extremely common, right? It happens a lot right. that people come in at the emergency department. It's a need for unplanned care. So it, it, happens, it happens quite often. I would try to reassure people in that the majority of people who are working in healthcare are there to help 
help take care of people. We're there because we want to help people feel better. We want people to have good quality of life. We want to help save people's lives. So I think like just remembering that like the majority of us are there for the right reasons and also keeping in mind what the standard of care in medicine is. So our standards are to keep a person alive and to keep them comfortable and to treat their pain and do what we can to support them so that they can recover, so that they can live, so that they can regain their quality of life. That is the standard of care. That is how we operate. That's what we do until we are told otherwise by documentation that's in the computer system by the patient themselves or by an advocate. I would tell you all that if your person, your parent, is in an emergency situation and the the medical team is not sure how to take care of them, like what their wishes are, their goals are, they're probably going to reach out to you. Is it going to come from the ER? It depends. It depends on what's going on in the emergency department. I wish that every time a patient came to me who was aging, that I'm like, I don't really know if they quite understand what's going on. If they And sometimes you have to get permission from them to call you all. Oh, yeah. Don't tell Susie. Yeah. it's So I have that quite often. I'm like, can I call your daughter? No, don't call her. Okay, well, I can't call her, right? But if, but if mom is confused and I'm like, oh, I need help making this decision, I'm looking in the chart to see who I can call. But I will tell you all that if it's super busy and slammed in the ER, remember, we're always taking care of the sickest person first and trying to call to update you about your parent may be lower on our list. And that might be a call that's coming to you from the hospital once your person, your parent gets stabilized and moved. So in an ideal world, we would always call, but it's not always possible. That brings up an important point because just because there may be some information in the hospital system about family members. It doesn't mean that it's always accessible, correct? Yeah. And one of the things everybody who's listening here should know is that we have what's called a file of life that, that's available to anybody. Just reach out to me on eldercaresuccess.live and I will make sure you get one. But these, Brittany and I talked about this and my husband even used it about two years ago when he was taking care of my dad's hospital bed and it fell on his toe while he had no shoes on uh. and I wasn't here so he went to the emergency room and the the ER doctor said and it was a mess he needed to be stitched up and the, the doctor said where did you get this yeah. and the doctor said he actually said if more people came in with this kind of information we could save more lives yeah but those documents really should also include the name of family members, yes. who to respond to, mm-hmm. medical information, so that you can respond faster. What is your experience when it comes to the time that it takes, or or should we even worry about paper documentation? I'm an advocate of paper in, in some cases because it's faster, mm-hmm. providing you've got access to it, versus we assume that everything is detailed and ordered in our records in the hospital or in the medical system. We're going to hold the conversation right there for just one minute, and then we'll be back with Dr. Brittany Lamb. If you've been listening to Eldercaresuccess.live for some time now, and I hope you have, no matter where you are in your journey, you know that we have reached our 100th episode. That's exciting for us, and I hope it's exciting for you, too. One of the things that I offer to all listeners is a free file of life. It's an easy tool and something that we actually talk about here in this particular episode with Dr. Brittany Lamb. It's a life-saving tool that will help you and your loved one in case of an emergency. And even if there's not an emergency, 
just taking it to a doctor or having it on hand to ask extra questions is a good thing to have. Technology is a great tool, but there's nothing like documentation on good old-fashioned paper. Believe me and believe Dr. Brittany Lamb because she endorses that as the most important tool in an emergency situation too. You can get your free file of life from me by going to eldercaresuccess.live. There's a link at the top with details on how to do so. There's a lot more in store in this particular episode and future episodes. So let me get back to my conversation with Dr. Brittany Lamb, the emergency room doctor. Oh, oh man, I could talk about this for like an hour. So paper is king. Paper is king. So I, yeah, yes, because the thing is, if you think about what if you think about what a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a PA is doing in the ER, yes, we do a lot of looking at the computer because we're, we look back at people's past medical history, what medications they take and all that stuff. It's helpful information, but there's so much clicking. A lot of it is buried. It's And it's not always updated. It's not always accurate. So if somebody hasn't been in the hospital for six months, I trust them to tell me what medications they take. This kind of goes into a bigger point of something that I... And if they're not coherent, then they can't even tell you, right? Exactly. And they have no advocate. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like I... So having a piece of paper or file, a file of life is wonderful because it's already organized for you. It already tells you all the components that you need and you just fill it out. But we need the medications. I need medications when I can change my plan of care by reading a patient's medication list because I know what med- what big major medical problems they have. And it helps me understand what the risk they have of our other medical emergencies that might be happening. And there are certain medications we have to know someone's taking, especially blood thinners. That's a big deal these days. So medications and allergies, major medical problems and emergency contact. And then it is so helpful to have people's who they want to be their medical decision maker when they can't speak for themselves. And if they've filled out advanced directive paperwork, that's really helpful if they're not able to speak for themselves. And it's not always able to be acted upon in the emergency department because sometimes we're trying to stabilize people and figure out what's going on in the ER. We don't always come up with the diagnosis. Your job is to really stabilize them so that they can get onto the next level of care, I would Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. It's are you sick enough that you need to be in the hospital? Do you have a problem happening to you that's risky enough that you should be monitored in the hospital? Or is whatever's happening to you, obviously it's not normal and it's maybe potentially affecting your quality of life, but you can follow up as an outpatient outside of the hospital and offices. And that's really our job. Our, when we diagnose patients, it's because things are extremely obvious or we were able to do that specific test, like looking for appendicitis, looking for gallbladder issues. Like there are some tests that we can run and we get back an an actual answer. But a lot of times when people have chest pain, abdominal pain, headaches, having trouble breathing, there's a lot of things it could be and time is helpful. And so that's a lot of times what happens in the hospital. But I want to stress that do not rely on the computer. Do not rely on it. You need to take ownership of our medical histories of what is happening to our body now and what's happened in the past because it helps us learn about what happens in the future. This is what I do in my business to support caregivers of people making medical decisions for people living with dementia is help them understand what their person's at risk for and look to the future so they can know what decisions they're going to have to make so they can plan for them. And even the app on the phone, I mean, I had this argument with a a fellow who claimed to be an ER professional. He wasn't a doctor. He was somebody who made 
community decisions in emergency yeah. situations, which is fine. And he just, oh, no, you need an app for that. You need an app for that. I said, yeah, wait a second. Mom can't find her phone. Right. She's got to go to the emergency room or you can't find yours or you get it or you run out of juice on your yeah. phone. Or I don't know about you, but I have like a million things on there. It would take me like probably 10 minutes to find what I was looking for. If yeah. I'm in a state of, not panic, but high adrenaline. Yeah. It's always, I think it's always better to have a paper copy because, and and I can stay in the room talking to you. Right. Rather than, because I'm not going through your, I'm not going through medical history on the computer in the room with a patient and their family. No way, Jose. I need to be <laughs> at the desk available to Dr. Lamb, here's this EKG you need to look at. Dr. Lamb, there's an ambulance on the phone trying to talk to you about what we should do. There's a patient that just rolled in that's having a stroke. I'm not going to stay in your room and go through the medical history. You either can give it to me verbally or you can give it to me on paper and we can talk or I'm coming back later. And so it just... A lot of distractions. It, I think it helps facilitate better communication. And also when I have that paper, I can tell you what I'm thinking. This is, this is the test that I'm going to run. Right. This is what I'm, this is what my plan is. I really feel like your person needs to be in the hospital. What are our goals here? We can have a much better conversation when I have access to that. Not to diminish or to, to demean the situation, but you're not my mommy doctor, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not my mom. You know, yeah. You're the professional that we rely on. When one of the other things I, I've been thinking about, and I've heard a couple of times, so somebody comes into the emergency room, they're elderly. Let's say they're in their mid-90s. And they're having a, a major medical issue and somebody in their 40s or 50s comes in and has a similar medical issue. Mm -hmm. Who gets a priority based on age or is it based on condition? It's based on condition. Okay. Whoever is sickest gets attention. Not to point fingers, but I've heard of age discrimination in the hospital where, oh, well, that guy doesn't have so long to live. I've, I've heard it elsewhere, but I'm not sure if that's true. Always. So here's the reality is that if a person is 95 years old, they're, they've already exceeded their life expectancy, right. right? And so they're at much higher risk of passing away than a 40-something-year-old person. Or a 13-year-old who has a strange situation, right? Yeah. Right, right. And so I think that when people are living with advanced age and they usually have underlying medical problems, I do think that it's a good idea to stop and say, okay, just because we can do all of this care, should we? Is this what this person wants? And I think sometimes things get slowed down a little bit and there's okay. more thought that goes into it. And if somebody is 95 years old and is actively dying, it's honestly, if, the, if they're requiring resuscitation, they are less likely to survive. But I mean, I've never been in a situation where I personally had to choose between resuscitating a 90-something-year-old person and a 40-something-year-old person in an emergency department. And our teams are capable of, you know, I can I can stand in the middle of some place and direct care in two different places. I mean, I can't be in two places at once, but teams are capable of running resuscitation without an actual doctor present. That's what happens in the hospital. Until a doctor shows up, that's the team runs the resuscitation. So... I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but... No, it's okay. I think it's a relevant question. I really do. But that's why I'm a champion of determining goals of care prior to these situations, because we know what happens to people as they age. We know the medical emergencies people are most likely to face based on their individual medical situation. And if you are interested in taking control over what happens to you if you're not able to speak for yourself, 
or if you're already advocating for somebody, if you're interested in having control over that, you can learn about the big things that are most likely to happen to that person so that you can think about them, not in an emergency crisis situation. Um, Those are important conversations to have, not just with your parents, but with yourself and your spouse or your partner, and quite frankly, your kids. My cousin recently called me last week and she said, I've taken care of, and she's younger than I am, she's taken care of her barrier plot, all her final body removal issues, whatever, whatever you want to call it, and talked to her daughter about it, who was in her early to mid-20s. And her daughter said, Mom, really, come on, cut, cut it out, really. Don't talk, don't bother me with that. And my cousin was really quite upset because she wanted her to at least be prepared should something happen. Uh She was expecting it to happen. But these are important conversations to have so that when they do happen, whether it's an emergency or you have to make that decision go or no go kind of Uh thing, that it's easier on those that have to say yes or no. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's good to have conversations um, with your family about what living means to you, what quality of life means to you. When you have to step in and make medical decisions for somebody else, that's how we make medical decisions. It's how has the person been living? How would they feel about the way they've been living? And then how likely is it with the different options for care that they're going to get back to the way that they've been living? And, and it doesn't happen, have to happen all at once. You can do this conversation. Oh, they no. They say, my parents did this with me since I was five. So I was suggested really? by the time I hit their care. No, it's planting seeds and it's updating as time goes on. And I think that it, it people don't realize, and maybe you're, you said it was your cousin. Maybe your cousin has had an experience in their life where they were in the situation that they had to take care of all those arrangements or they knew they know somebody else that was in that situation. My father had a a terminal brain cancer, and I remember him like haggling on the phone with the the cremation services about the price of his cremation. And I thought it was like, this is so weird to hear him doing this now. But we were so grateful that he set that stuff up and that we didn't have to do that. So I I think sometimes when you approach the person that you're trying to talk to, it's, I love you. I want to arm you with as much information as possible so that you don't feel stressed and you don't have as big of a burden. And so it it is an uncomfortable thing, but this is life. But it's a gift. It really is a gift. My parents did the same thing for me. And there were some minor adjustments that we had to make at the end with my dad who passed first. But I got them all done literally probably hours before he passed so that when he did, I could take a breath and focus on myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's for anybody who's listening, please understand that the conversations are difficult and a parent may not even want to talk about it. But if you explain, look at we want to make that time in their life as gentle and respectful and loving as possible. And you know that they love you, too, and that you'll be able to be there for them. But if there's worries, you can kiss that one goodbye. It's just it's going to be a mess. So back to the ER room, one of the things that people are always asked to do is to sign documentations, Mm -hmm. documentation in the ER. If you have dementia, and it may not necessarily be obvious if Mm -hmm. somebody's alone and has dementia and sign something and then not necessarily aware of what they're signing because they're all done predominantly now through through electronic documentation Mm -hmm. and they make a mistake. 
and they shouldn't have signed it. Mm -hmm. What happens? Well, I mean, are you talking about financial paperwork? What I'm talking what? about financial, about life decisions. I'm talking about a variety of things. I mean, I'm so, an advocate of getting a printout and seeing yeah, it so that if yeah. you want to make changes, and I say this to everybody, and Brittany, I know you probably agree with me, do not sign anything electronically if you don't know what it is and you don't have time to read it. Ask yeah. for a printout, read it, cross out what you don't like, sign and date it and put your notes mm -hmm. on it. And yeah. they should honor that. But I think that it depends on the hospital that you're interacting They won't refuse your care if you say, I no, can't sign No, 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 right. absolutely not. That's, that's, that's illegal, actually. There's laws in place that we can't refuse right. care based on ability to pay. So don't feel pressured. Right. No, 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 no. And there's usually, from a financial standpoint, there's usually people in hospitals that you can go to that can help navigate the financial piece of things. And um, you can negotiate fees if you have... Yes. issues with insurance. So please yeah. do that. Yeah, we yeah. did a show on that too. So yeah. yeah. And I, I never ask patients. I'm never really involved in having patients sign things except for medical order forms like a do not resuscitate or a pulse form if I do that with a patient right. and their family. And that's not as common in the ER. Normally I'm doing forms with people because that's already their established goals of care and no one has done the forms with them. So I'm right. like, okay, we need to protect you from us. The other things are like consenting to procedures. And so if if a person living with dementia is really early on, they still should have the ability to to sign some of that stuff if they still have capacity. If they're sick, that may have gotten worse, but right. we do the best we can. And so sometimes are people signing things who might actually have lack of capacity? Yes, I think so. But the standard of care is to provide medical care and treatment. Right. And so the what would be the biggest issue I see is if somebody's goals are not to receive care and like prolonging treatment and then they get it because they didn't have capacity to um seen that too. Yeah. Yep. It's a good point to make sure that you print it print things out and ask for printouts of what you're signing. I think that's part. Again, paper rules. Yeah. yeah Before it does. we go, I want to talk a little bit about because there's a confusion quite often on this one. When you're in the emergency room and you may or may not be admitted, but there's a time that's called in in observation. Yeah. What does that mean mm -hmm. and how long can they keep you there? Because that becomes an insurance coverage issue in some cases that is not always covered and then becomes this disastrous, oh my God, with this bill that some people may not be able to cover. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know a little bit about this, but again, it's frustrating because it pits patients and physicians and people making their medical decisions against each other when you're saying i don't think that you should go home but we can't put you in as inpatient status so that's what you're talking about is observation versus versus inpatient. admission right correct yeah if you stay in a hospital for three midnights you're inpatient status typically and then they can cover costs like rehab costs with medicare like medicare will pay for rehab if you've been at the hospital. Well, you don't want to be in observation in the ER for no, three that's, nights. That's, I mean, they wouldn't necessarily... It depends on the, the it depends on the um hospital situation, but ER observation is usually not more than twelve hours, twenty-four hours. Um that's not common. There are observation units inside of hospitals that can keep people it's for a long time 24, in some cases, 48 yeah. hours. Um but yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to know whether or not your insurance is going to say there's a difference in cost to you. If you go into a hospital, admitted to the hospital under observation status versus inpatient status, 
That is something people should know about ahead of time. Ask questions right up front and say, where are we on this? What's the status? Is it observation or are they being admitted? In, in, inpatient. Patient. Okay. That's the term that you want to use is inpatient versus observation. Um, and it, there, there can be financial um, implications to a family, to a patient. And it, it really just depends on the insurance coverage. And the social worker, the case manager in the hospital can might be able to get involved and go through that, as well as the people who are doing registration because they understand the different insurance plans and what you have and, and what is covered and not. So it's usually when I have families that are concerned about things like that, I get registration involved and I get our case manager involved. But it's hard. But again, you have to speak up and ask. Yes. So most families don't know that there's this can become a critical issue for their family. Yeah. When they're also worried about the health and well-being of somebody who's in a, an emergency situation. Yeah, and it's frustrating. Like I said, it's, sometimes it's they're having they're weak from the flu. Okay, they're not actively dying. They don't have pneumonia. Their lungs haven't failed, but they're just so weak from the flu that it's not really safe for them to go home. They might not meet inpatient criteria, but it's the right thing to do to keep them in the hospital. It's very frustrating. It it just comes down, it, it's coming down to money. It's coming down to people not wanting to pay. So insurance, not wanting to pay. So, Well, and that's a hard position for a doctor to be yeah. in, obviously. Your role and your training is to make sure that people get better. Yes. Not to manage the business yeah. of medicine, but to manage the care of medicine. And that's what people have to understand. Brittany, this has been a great discussion, and we're going to wrap up. But I wanted to just quickly reiterate, we've talked a little bit about it here, is the importance of understanding the life goals that you have around for yourself, for your loved ones, for your aging parents, and to understand that. And that is so important because it makes the quality of the care that you as a doctor can provide more in line with what somebody no, wants. No, 100%. Not that no. you're going to say, yeah. adios amigos, we're done. <laughs> we don't need to do that. But even if there's a desire to maybe not go forward, and they're fine, and they're, but you know, whatever that is, but understanding the, it's an emotional, it's an emotional situation when you're under stress, and the adrenaline is running in yeah. an emergency situation. It's important situation. to have conversations about what matters most. Can doctors help with that conversation? It's an uncomfortable situation to have, I think, because when you're having that conversation and you're sitting there in a hospital gown, like you know. Eh, you're already a little stressed yeah. out to begin with. I think but... it depends on the situation. I think that ER physicians, we have difficult conversations with patients. We have to ask about... You're trained to have those difficult versus a general practitioner. I think yeah. that our lens is different than a primary care doctor because we actually start and manage patients who are critically ill. We actually do the things to people that we're asking, do you want this or do you not? Um but ultimately, when people are interested in taking control and ownership about what might happen to them, either for themselves or so they can pass that information on to somebody else, or if they're advocating for somebody else, it really starts, the foundation is, let's get an idea about what this person's risks are from a medical standpoint. And then let's actually figure out what quality of life means to them, what their value of it is, and what it actually, what gives them quality of life so that we can, when medical issues happen, we can look at the different treatment options and see how those are going to impact the person's quality of life going forward. And that's really how you kind of plan for the future. But 
I will say that not all doctors are good at this. And so if you're getting to a point where quality of life is really important, you should say that. You just say quality of life is extremely important to me. And there are situations in which I would not want everything medically available to me to keep me alive. I wouldn't want that. And if you say that or you say that for someone else, the physician's going to be like, oh, I have permission to have a discussion with you about this. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, hesitation because people don't know how the person is going to going to take that information like, oh, you're giving up on me. You don't want to take care of me because I'm living with advanced age or these medical problems. And I, I think it's I think the conversation should be more like what exactly what you said, what matters to you, what matters most to you. And there's a lot of education that people need in order to have better conversations with medical professionals. That's why I came online because I got so frustrated by seeing people who are aging with problems that are foreseeable. I, I'm like, I could have told you three years ago that this was very likely to happen. It's looking at what's going on now and looking towards the future so that we can have a better idea about what we're going to do. You see the patterns that happen day in and day out, so it's easier for you to see over the yeah. course of the many people that you've taken care of. And for those of us who are going through this with one parent, two parents, or even in-laws, it doesn't become a pattern. Although after the first one, you notice the second a little bit more, and it, but it, the, the throngs, or I should say, maybe the, the volume of people you deal with makes it easier for you to see that. We get that. And quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big term. It's different for everybody. When what is the term quality? Somebody living with sickness may be quality because they're still breathing. Hundred percent, and, and that's okay. Person. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. So understanding that, we one thing I, I want to say to everybody who's listening is that Brittany and I are recording this around the Christmas holidays, and the episode will come out later. Obviously, if you're listening to this, and I wanted to share that one of the interesting things that I heard a number of years ago is that there tends to be an increase in emergency situations around the holidays. I did some research and found that it's actually increased about anywhere between, the numbers vary between 5 to 20% in the last year around the holidays. Some of that is because, especially with aging parents, you've got family there, you've got kids, the flu comes on, people are not vaccinated. And I'm not meaning COVID vaccine, I'm just meaning flus or maybe in a more stressful environment. You're getting lack of sleep. People are not paying attention to their diets, especially if they're diabetic or have heart issues. A little bit more alcohol, some stress, anger, falls, and even, goodness gracious, the Kirk turkey wasn't cooked properly, and so mom got sick. Yeah, <laughs> you're naming. You're naming all of it. These are these are great, right? Things. Like, yes. yeah, you talked about vomiting in the car, so I thought about okay, we've got a party tomorrow. So I'm making sure that that bird is cooked. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so understand that emergencies happen, especially around the holiday times, whether it's Christmas, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, birthdays, whenever there's large gatherings that get together, and knowing how to behave and how to react in a stressful emergency situation is key to the quality of your life as well as somebody else's. And thankfully, we have somebody like Brittany here to talk a little bit more about what it's like to be that professional that we go to and say, help fix me, patch me up, and send me home so I can continue breathing and having a good time and go back to that pumpkin pie, maybe. Uh (laughs) So thank you, Brittany. It's been terrific. I would love to come back and talk a little bit more about ER and other issues uh, at another time. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll come back. I'll come back anytime. And if people have specific questions, we could dive into those as well. So we'll have to do a chat. I'm thinking about doing a, a small community group and we might want to do that. So yeah, live and in person with Elder Care Success. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Take care. Have a great day. And for those of you who are listening, as I always like to say, share this with a friend, a family member, or even somebody else that could be down the road from you because they might need the help too. You might not even know it. It can be your gift to them because it's our gift to you. And don't forget, there's a file of life available for you if you just reach out on eldercaresuccess.live and you can listen to us here on the podcast at eldercaresuccess.live or you can check out our YouTube channel where you can see us. Take care, have a great day, be well, and stay safe. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright Caremanity LLC.